Good morning. Sorry, is there anyone there? Good morning. That's better. That's better. I hope you've got a Bible or access to a text because we're going to be looking at Bible together. That's why we're here. That's why I'm here. I happen to believe this old-fashioned idea that there is a God and that that God is not only the creator and sustainer and sovereign of the universe, that's how this all came to be, but he's also a God who speaks, a God who communicates. And if he is the creator, sustainer, and sovereign, and has made everything and knows how it should work and how we should live, if that really is who he is, then we ought to pay attention to what he says. And that's what this is. We have the benefit of reading it in our mother tongue, our heart language. And I'm going to be reading and summarizing a very long section. We're looking at 2 Samuel 23, and we're breaking into the middle of the section of the chapter, and we're going to read some of it and summarize other parts, and I'm going to give you a few moments to find where 2 Samuel 23 is. But just as you're doing that, I want to recognize that that voice of God into our world telling us how we should live is not the only voice that you will hear. There are many voices all around. For example, there is a very famous person in America called Oprah Winfrey. Now, I imagine not many people in Crescent Church have ever heard of Oprah Winfrey. Would anyone admit to having heard of Oprah Winfrey? Well, this is the advice Oprah gives. Quote, follow your feelings. If it feels right, move forward. If it doesn't feel right, don't do it. End of quote. Miss Oprah Winfrey. And what we're going to see in this passage we have this morning is effectively someone taking Oprah's advice and living out Oprah's advice, allowing their decisions, their life to be shaped, determined by their feelings. It felt like the thing to do, so I just went with it. And there are people all around outside and perhaps inside. And that's the way you think. By contrast, the God who is the creator, sustainer, and sovereign says, it matters that we do the right thing in the right way and for the right reason. Let me take you now to the text and break in, as we do, to the middle of chapter 13 in 2 Samuel. Let me just remind you of the story so far. David is the king. He has, we're told elsewhere in Scripture, at least 19 sons by a variety of different mothers. And we know of one daughter, Tamar. And Tamar was a beautiful young woman. And one of her half-brothers by the name of Amnon could not live without conquering, subduing, and as it turned out, raping her. And having raped her, 
he put her outside and bolted the door and cast her away as if she was just a piece of litter. Her full brother, Absalom, takes her into his home and for two years he plots how he will respond to Amnon, the rapist. And what we're going to see in this section is the the aftermath of the the rape and how her dad, King David, father, and the, the embodiment of justice and the legal system and power, what he'll do or not do. And then as the royal family is troubled by this rape and its aftermath and the, the consequences of just following your feelings as that poison works its way through the body politic. Because Oprah's ideas are not new. They're ancient. As it works its way through, we'll see what it looks like if we live life Oprah's way. So if you have a text, I'm picking up in 2 Samuel chapter 13, verse 23. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. We're going to see that there are really six episodes here. The first one is Absalom, full brother to Tamar, the rape victim. He hates. He's consumed with hatred without restraint. After two full years... That's two full years after the rape. So 24 months have passed. Absalom had sheep shearers at Balhazar, which is near Ephraim, and Absalom invited all the king's sons. And Absalom came to the king and said, Behold, your servant has sheep shearers. Please let the king and his servants go with your servant. Pause. This was to be a big, a big party, a big celebration around the time of looking after some business with the sheep. But the king, verse 25, said to Absalom, No, my son, let us not all go, lest we be burdensome to you. He pressed him, but he would not go, but gave him his blessing. Then Absalom said, If not, please let my brother Amnon, brackets, a.k.a. rapist, close brackets, go with us. And the king said to him, Why should he go with you? Everyone knew, pause. Everyone knew what had happened. David has done nothing for two years. But Absalom pressed him until he let Amnon and all the king's sons go with him. Then Absalom commanded his servants, Mark when Amnon's heart is merry with wine. Pause. When he's had his fill of the happy hour, when his judgment's not as strong and as clear as it should be, when I say to you, verse 28, strike Amnon, then kill him. Don't fear, I've, have I not commanded you? Be courageous and be valiant. So the servants of Absalom did to Amnon as Absalom had commanded. Then all the king's sons arose and each mounted his mule and fled. Episode two, David's response, anger without action, verse 30. While they were on their way, news came to David. Absalom has struck down all the king's sons and not one of them is left. 
Then the king arose and tore his garments and lay on the earth. And all his servants who were standing by tore their garments. But Jonadab, the son of Shemaiah, David's brother, so this is a nephew of David, who had, if you recall the story, he had been involved in the plan that led to the rape of Tamar. Let not my lord suppose they have killed all the young men, the king's sons, for Amnon alone is dead. Pause. How do you know that? You weren't at the party. How do you know what's going on? For by the command of Absalom, this has been determined from the day he violated his sister Tamar. Now, therefore, let not my lord the king so take it to heart as to suppose all the king's sons are dead, for Amnon alone is dead. But Absalom fled. The young man who kept watch lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, many people were coming from the road behind by the side of the mountain. And Jonadab said to the king, Behold, the king's sons have come, as your servant said, so it's come about. In other words, pause. Aren't I a clever chap? And as soon as he had finished speaking, behold, the king's sons came and lifted up their voice and wept. And the king also and all his servants wept very bitterly. That's the height of David's reaction. He sat by for 24 months after his daughter is raped. He now hears that the rapist is dead at the hands of another son. And he weeps bitterly. Episode 3. Absalom retreats without remorse. Verse 37. Absalom fled and went to Talmai, the son of Amihud, king of Geshur. Pause. That's his granddad on his mum's side. It's his mother's father. And this is north and east of the river Jordan, outside of David's strict control. And David mourned for his son day after day. So Absalom fled and went to Geshur and was there for three years. And the spirit of the king longed to go out to Absalom. Pause there. Some commentators translate that as he was angry and he was thinking of going after him. Others say, no, he was emotionally drawn towards Absalom. What we do know is he didn't do anything. Because he was comforted about Amnon since he was dead. Episode 4. King David is manipulated by others without justice. Now, Joab, the son of Zariah, knew that the king's heart went out to Absalom. And Joab sent to Tekoa, that's 10 miles south of Jerusalem, and brought from there a wise woman and said to her, pretend to be a mourner, put on mourning garments, don't anoint yourself with oil, but behave like a woman who has been mourning many days for the dead. Go to the king and speak thus to him. So Joab put the words in her mouth. Pause. What he's doing here is he is recruiting an actress who's also skillful, not only at learning her lines and her script, but also at improv, improvisation, because you can't always expect the king just to respond the way that he might, so you've got to be ready to improvise. 
And the deal here is that Joab, this man, is saying, now, we're going to set this up so that you will go in pretending to be a woman who's a problem with her family, and we'll see in a moment, and then what we want you to do, dear wise woman, actress, improviser, is to manipulate David to the point where he commits and is willing to bring back Absalom into the city. So let's see the lines. Verse 4 of chapter 14. When the woman of Tekoa came to the king, she fell on her face to the ground and paid homage and said, Save me, O king. Pause. She's now asking the king as the fount of justice to sort out her problem. She's coming looking to the king for justice. The king said to her, What's your trouble? She answered, Alas, I'm a widow. My husband is dead, and your servant had two sons. They quarreled with one another in the field. There was no one to separate them. And one struck the other and killed him. Now the whole clan has risen against your servant, and they say, give up the man who struck his brother that we may put him to death for the life of his brother whom he killed. And so they would destroy the heir also. Thus they would quench my coal that is left. In other words, the son that remains to me. They want to wipe him out and leave to my husband neither name nor remnant on the face of the earth. In other words, King, if the family and the neighbors and the police and the authorities in my hometown follow the law that God has set, I'll not just lose one son, I'll lose both. I'll have nothing. I'm a widow. I, I, I have nothing. The king said to the woman, go to your house and I will give orders concerning you. But that's not good enough. What does that mean? I'll make a decision. She doesn't know what he's going to decide. Verse 9, the woman of Tekoa said to the king, on me be the guilt, my lord, the king, and on my father's house. Let the king and his throne be guiltless. The king said, if anyone says anything to you, bring him to me, and he shall never touch you again. Then she said, please, let the king invoke the Lord your God that the avenger of blood kill no more and my son be not destroyed. He, the king, said, as the Lord lives, not one hair of your son shall fall to the ground. Then the woman said, please let your servant speak a word to the king. And then she turns the tables on him and says, do you see what you've just done, David? if I paraphrase, you have allowed me to go back to my home with the comfort and reassurance that my surviving son, the killer, will not be punished. He's going to be protected by you and your authority. Now, let me apply that logic to your situation, David, because you have a son who's living with his grandfather who you think of as responsible for killing Amnon, the rapist, and you're keeping him away. You haven't brought him back and restored him. Why don't you apply the same logic and allow him to come back into good favor with you? And this is how she manipulates it. And the king smells a rat and says, is Joab behind this? Yes, he's behind this. But the king is trapped through his own emotions and not really investigating because the two situations aren't the same, are they? 
two brothers fighting and an accidental death results is not the same thing as Absalom planning for 24 months the cold-blooded murder of Amnon. Accidental death is not the same thing as killing with malice aforethought. So the king hasn't investigated, hasn't probed it, hasn't applied sound judgment to it. He has allowed his emotions for this poor woman dressed as she is and looking so abject and so pitiful. And your heart goes out to her, wouldn't it? Wouldn't it? Episode 5, verse 21. David fudges justice. The king said to Joab, Behold, now I grant this. Go bring back the young man Absalom. And Joab fell on his face to the ground and paid homage, blessed the king. And Joab said, Today your servant knows that I found favor in your sight, my lord the king, in that the king has granted the request of his servant. So Joab arose and went to Geshur and brought Absalom to Jerusalem. And the king said, Let him dwell apart in his own house. He's not to come into my presence. So Absalom lived apart in his own house and did not come into the king's presence. What a fudge. Joab's plan with this actress has paid off. The king has softened and the king has allowed Absalom to be brought back to Jerusalem. But he's got to stay outside the palace, outside the court. He's not going to embarrass the king by actually coming in and living as a prince among the royal family. He stays outside. But, but what is that? If he's a killer, he should be punished and dealt with. If he is innocent, he should be received and treated accordingly. What, what are you doing, David? What sort of fudge is this you've cooked up? Where's the justice in this? Sixth episode, verse 25. Absalom is restored but without repentance. Now, all, in all Israel, there was no one so much to be praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him. And when he cut the hair of his head, for at the end of every year he used to cut it, when it was heavy on him, he cut it. He weighed the hair of his head. He probably took selfies when he was doing it. 200 shekels by the king's weight. In other words, he was strong. He was handsome. He was virile, and he knew it. And he wanted everyone else to know it too. There were born to Absalom three sons, one daughter whose name was Tamar, his sister's name, the rapist's victim, Tamar. She was a beautiful woman. So Absalom lived for two full years in Jerusalem without coming into the king's presence. Then Absalom sent for Joab to send him to the king, but Joab, let me paraphrase, Joab wouldn't take his calls. And Joab's done well by Absalom. He's got him from granddad's down into the city, and he's on the outskirts, and now Absalom's pushing for more. He wants access right into the palace, and Joab said, Effectively, I'm done. So when someone doesn't take your calls, you persist. 
And what Absalom does is he arranges to burn down a field belonging to Joab, which gets his attention, as it would. Verse 31, Joab arose, went to Absalom in his house, and said to him, Why have you, your servants set my field on fire? Absalom answered, Behold, I sent word to you, come here, that I may send you to the king to ask why if I come from Geshur, it would be better for me to be here still. Now, therefore, let me go into the presence of the king. Here's the stinger. If there's guilt in me, let him put me to death. Then Job went to the king and told him, and he summoned Absalom. And he came to the king, did Absalom, bowed himself with his face to the ground before the king, and the king kissed Absalom. This is the word of God. In the time I've got, let me just do a couple of things. I wanted to give attention to the text because it seems to me that the text, if God speaks, if there is a God and he speaks, and this is what he's saying, the most important thing we can do is pay attention to it. It's God's text. But yet, in this section, did you notice how often God was mentioned and how active he was or wasn't? Okay, can you find where he appears and acts in this? Where is God in this? He's not mentioned as active until chapter 17, a couple of chapters on. Where, where is God in all of this turmoil, confusion, bloodshed, corruption, violence? And, and, and at times, as we look around and see such a mess in our own lives and culture and society and in our world, the question sometimes pops into our heads. Is God really still interested? Is God still active? We haven't seen the great revivals we've heard about. We haven't seen. Where is God? What is God doing? What's he at? And if you go back to chapter 12, you'll find that after David had sinned with Bathsheba, God sent his spokesman, Nathan. Nathan had told him in chapter 12, verses 10 to 12, that there would be consequences for what David had done. And the consequences would be three things. Evil within his own family, a sword that would not depart from his own house, and that his own sin would be exposed and there would be calamity that would be open and everyone could see. So God isn't asleep. He's not forgotten the plot God is allowing the judgment to roll out. Follow your feelings. Do it. And this is what you get. God gives us that freedom. We are morally responsible agents. We're not robots. It matters what we do, why we do it, how we do it. And God holds us accountable for it. And there are consequences. So God is not inactive. He is still at work, allowing this sentence to roll through. But let me bring you to King David. 
What do you make of him? David, we're told, was a man after God's own heart. And in this section, David is a man certainly in touch with his emotions. He's a man who is full of emotion, full of feelings. It's just the actions that are lacking. He fails time and again, both as a father and as king. He's got two hats to wear. And he doesn't discharge himself at all. It starts off with lax discipline amongst his own children. There's a clue to that if you look in 1 Kings chapter 1, verse 6, about one of his other sons, Adonijah, who was troublesome as well, that the commentator tells us there that David just never, ever bothered to get around to saying, now their son, don't do that. If you want to do it, get on and do it. He yielded to the whims, to the wishes, to the emotions of his sons. And lax discipline was the result, and here we see the fruit of it coming out. Secondly, in the section just before what we read, when he learned of the rape of his daughter, chapter 13, verse 21, tells us that he was angry, but he didn't do anything. So, no one could fault David for his emotional reaction. Your daughter is raped, King David, by her half-brother. Now what? Oh, I'm angry about that. I, I'm really furious about that. Okay. Now what? Well, I'm really angry. And that's it. Imagine how Tamar must have reacted to that. Where is the paternal care? Where's the father's love? Where's a proper response, Dad, to what has happened to me? And then in the section we've been looking at together, he hears that the rapist Amnon is put to death. Now the question is, what's he going to do to Absalom, the killer? The answer, well, we saw it together. He allows him effectively to go and take refuge with grandpops. Does he get together a, a group of soldiers and men to go and recover or even negotiate for Absalom's release? Does he plan how he's going to bring justice home to Absalom for his killing of Amnon? No, he doesn't. He allows him to escape, and he allows him to stay safe with Grandad for years. But he was angry. <laughs> and then we saw, fourthly, that when this actress comes and dresses up and does the, the spiel for him. 
he responds emotionally, not stopping to investigate and find out, now really what did go on, and let's find out, let's make inquiries, let's make sure this is done properly on proper evidence and proper law applied to this situation. He just follows his heart. She looks so sad. It would be terrible if she loses both sons. The, the consequences of that are just so oh, it doesn't matter what the law requires. I'm driven by my emotions to give in to the pathetic sight of this woman. And then when it's time to bring Absalom back as he decides, he can't make up his mind whether Absalom is guilty or innocent. He's staying on the outskirts of the city which looks as if he's acceptable to some degree, but not fully because he's not in the palace. So if he were innocent, he'd be in the palace, and if he were guilty, he'd be in a grave. So which is it, David? You're the king. You're the source of justice. You're the one whose job it is to apply justice. Why can't you get on and do it, man? And finally, we see in that last verse in chapter 14, that having had this dose of fudge for a couple of years, he now brings himself to the point where he, without repentance, without remorse, without any contrition on the part of Absalom, he throws his arms out because, well, it's time to forgive. Let bygones be bygones. The past doesn't matter. Absalom, come, let me give you my embrace. But how can there be reconciliation without repentance? How can there be forgiveness without acknowledging what you've done wrong? David fails as king, as source of justice, and as father. Three things about us. Number one, I've got to be careful not to be hard on David. For I struggle to keep love, and justice in balance. The Lord Jesus, we're told, was full of grace and truth. John chapter 1, verse 14. He had it in perfect harmony. But for us, whether through temperament or because we're living in this emotional culture, this emotive culture, it's very, very hard to keep these two things in proper relationship, love and justice. And when leaders fail, as they do, it's very easy to write them off. But God doesn't write him off for this. He allows it to play out, and he allows us to see the frailty in David. John Carson puts it this way, like our leaders, we fail. We should not be disillusioned when leaders prove to be flawed. We should support them where we can, seek to correct the faults where possible, and leave the rest to God, all the while recognizing the terrible potential for failure and fault in our own lives. So let's be careful not to be too quick to write him off, but recognize the reality of his failure. Secondly, What does all this say about this great promise that God had made that he would raise up a house through David? David's son, so much was invested in 
the line that would come on after David. What is this sad, sorry, sordid set of episodes? What does it say about that? We're looking for a greater son of David than any of these. We're looking for great David's greater son. Which brings me to the last and the most important reflection of all. If you like, the writer here has taken several pages to paint what happens when Oprah gets her way. And to drive home to us the, the impossibility for us to keep in proper balance love and justice. And to drive into our hearts that longing for the one who can do that the one who will do that, the one who will be able to find a way to be both loving and just. Who could do that? Earlier this morning, some of us were here taking bread and wine and remembering the divine geometry when God squared the circle with the cross. God's issue was how can he forgive and do it justly. He wants to forgive. He has this compassionate heart, this love, this desire to be gracious and to receive rebels and failures and rotten scoundrels into his presence. But how can he do that justly? Remain true to his moral, absolute, perfect character. How can he be both just and the one who forgives the rebels? How can he do that? David couldn't. God squared that circle with a cross. You find this explained in Romans chapter 3, verse 21 and following. How God himself, in the words of John Stott, gave himself to save us from himself. That God the Son, equal to the Father and to the Spirit, hangs naked on a cross, and God the Father pours out in perfect justice the full, undiluted wrath and anger and punishment that my sin and your sin deserved. And it's poured out, redirected from us, and poured out fully on His Son. So says Paul. He is both just because He punished and is able to forgive and to bring into relationship those who are the rebels and the failures. He is both just and the justifier of him who has faith in Christ Jesus. And that's the only way, ladies and gentlemen, that love and justice can ever be brought together, embrace and kiss, is on the cross of the Lord Jesus. Would you bow your head with me and pray? Some of you know this full well. Perhaps for others, it's something of a challenge. If you want, I'd be very happy to speak with you afterwards and discuss it further. There is simply nothing more important than how you react to this fact of history that God the Son was made to suffer 
what we deserve. Lord Jesus Christ, we bow before you. You are now in heaven, having gone the way of the cross and making that sacrifice of yourself and dying there. You were raised to life. Your Father vindicated you and your claims to be equal to the Godhead, to be the promised Messiah, to be who you said you were. And now you are exalted, seated at the right hand of God. One day you will return and you will judge the world in righteousness and fairness. We thank you, Father, that you've sent your Spirit so that we might be convicted and understand how rotten we are, how far away we are, how needy we are of you to fix what we cannot fix. We pray by your Spirit you would speak to each heart and bring us to the point where we surrender before you and cry out in adoration, Lord Jesus, Son of David, thank you for having mercy on us and for saving me. From my heart, I give you thanks. Amen. On your behalf,